Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. And we're live. That wasn't that bad. Minute 40 seconds. How appropriate that you have a video about FOMO as I sit here in Chicago in the cold without a drink in my hand and the three of you are in the can <laughs> sipping on cocktails. That's, that's FOMO, FOMO in a nutshell there. Cheers, my friend. Here's, here's <laughs> I mean, looking you at you. Got, you. You still got at least two hours more of work. Yeah. Yeah. We're done for the day. <laughs> How you doing? I'm Bill. doing well. It's great welcome, to see welcome. you guys. Yeah, it's been, been too long. I hope, hope you're doing well. Good to be seen. Are you going to uh, do any of these conferences coming up in uh, in January up in Florida at all, or February? I, are you going to hit any of these ETF conferences? Will we see I, you there? Yeah, I think uh, the the tentative plan is to try to do something at a, a exchange, the new one in Miami. Yeah, I've been yeah. been trading emails with Matt over there just to figure out maybe like a speaking slot or something. But nice. Yeah, with with the book coming out, I, I got to try to line up uh, make conference things as I can. So, um, oh, look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, yeah. Those are always fun. Any other big ones uh, on, on the calendar for you guys? Or There's a few futures-related ones. Okay. We're switching over to uh, from Context to iConnections, which I think, you know, to Miami, the same guys that ran Context are now running iConnections. So it's going to be an interesting rivalry there. But generally, yeah, it's going to be, you know, the alternative um, and futures-based conferences that we're going to be at. When, when's the inaugural Resolve Wealth, uh, wealth Management retreat up in uh, Cayman. Oh, it's coming. Soon. Soon. <laughs> Meb, Meb, Meb was all over Rod. And, uh, How did we lose Mike's audio Mike's, there? Mike. I think so. Uh, yeah, Meb was all on the <laughs> podcast I just recorded with Meb, Meb and Corey. 
He was like, when is it? When's the conference? I'm like, whenever we open up. So we're very close. The Cayman Islands is opening up as of tomorrow, right? November 20th. So we should be able to plan something. Now you're muted, Mike. Your button's muted. So. Yeah, you're muted, bro. Um, so, Phil, you, uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, but I do want to yeah. see your, your book cover because the books never made it to us. I, yeah, man, show us. Let's go. I got to, yeah, hopefully you got, you got I see the, four in the back, no? Yeah, we got some. So the, the, the physical ones are on their way to you. Hopefully you got a chance to take a look at the PDF I sent. Give me, give yeah, me a sec. Yeah, I'll, give you, I'll give you the upcoming. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, he's getting the book. We'll read the disclaimer, right, Rodrigo? Do you want to go or? No, man, you, you're in charge oh, of it forever yeah. and ever. I'm, okay. I don't ever want to do that. All right. We're just talking. delivering the disclaimer here for a second. Go ahead. Show the book. Go. Do it. There we go. We're the Allocator's Edge. There it is. Man, that's a Modern pretty. Guide to Alternative Investments and the Future of Diversification. Bill Huber. And some, ran, some, some random no-name. Some random by, dudes. Uh, and uh, Cliff, <laughs> Cliff something. He wrote a nice glowing forward, too. Um, oh, it was like classic Cliff, and yeah, he he did a wonderful job. That was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he made a reference to Greyjoy in there, which I think was a reference to Game of Thrones, which I was especially tickled by. But you know, he's such a such a great nerd. Just love him. Yeah, um, there there's a couple references I didn't quite get, but I let him just pass. I'm like, you know what? This is this is Cliff's <laughs> baby. I'm gonna I'm not gonna touch it. I'm not gonna. You know, suggest any edits. It, it's going to go in just as he wrote it. So, yeah, totally. Um, so, I actually thought that the Allocator's Edge was a really great. Um, you know, it connects very directly to the FOMO, the, like the message in the video at the start, right? Um, just just going through it. Um, I mean, we've been having the same conversation over and over again with. Um, 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 uh, What is going on with the Resolves tech? Deeper <laughs> on similar themes. You know, we obviously have been banging the drum for a while on similar themes. So, I mean, obviously, it just super resonated with us. But maybe you just go. Yeah, you're working now, Mike. Welcome back. Oh, we got to go to disclaimers first. So, um, whatever we talk about on this episode is for entertainment purposes only. We strongly advise you to not take investment advice from Four dudes having a drink uh, on a stream on Friday afternoon. Nothing. You guys can hear you. We hear you, but you can't hear us. That's good. This is fun to do live. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, Phil, this book, um, we love it. But but why were you motivated to write it now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been in the works for a while. It just I, I couldn't believe how long the whole process took. Largely, yeah. Portnoy was still at Magnetar when you when you wrote it. There was a few other references where I was like, yeah, yeah, I can see. It just takes a long time to write and then move through the publishing process. I know. Yeah, and, and a lot of it was on me, just my own uh, reasons for needing extensions and whatnot. Like we, you know, we I, I inked the deal with uh, Harriman House, my publisher. This was like summer 2019, and summer 2019 was also when I became a dad for the first time, and so having a baby. <laughs> aligned with like this book thing. I was like, oh man, like when am I going to find time for, for that? And then we were also during 29, much of 2019 in the, in the midst of our negotiations with Savant, my, my current employer, but at the time I was still Huber Financial and we'd yet to, to merge. And so just a, a lot of the merger related stuff. And then of course, fast forward to 2020 and the onset of COVID, it just became one of those projects that seemed like every possible thing that could get in the way was getting in the way of it. But then 
things settled down like fall of 2020 i you know like like many people who were kind of on lockdown and not doing much you know on weekends the social calendar was pretty you know pretty bleak so i was like you know what i got i got this weekend time now i'm just gonna crank out and try to get it done and so i, I wrapped up the the manuscript in uh march of this year a couple of months of back and forth edits and then you know a few months just to get to publication so yeah it's quite it's quite the process but it was it was a uh, I, I enjoyed i wouldn't say i enjoyed all of it there's definitely some pain some pain points to it but as you guys know but uh yeah i feel very happy and pleased with how it turned out and uh, just fulfilled that i did it and i would say that the the inspiration for the idea of like why why this topic why write this specific book was really just goes back to my my years of experience being in the kind of head investment seat for a um, registered investment advisory firm um, and my role really just being in support of all of our advisors and our clients and not just building the investment strategies that we use um, in our portfolios but also how do we best communicate them and how do we educate our advisors and clients so they can stick with them and, and you know one thing became very clear over the years as we continued to increase our usage of different types of uncorrelated non-traditional investments was it was it was a source of of confusion and uh, a lot of uh, the the vast majority of questions the clients had about performance or just how do I think about these things in the context of my you know my other assets they you know it's, it's great in theory to think to own things that behave differently and move independently but experience and practice are, are different especially when you have a backdrop of a continually rising equity bull market you know there was there was you know certainly clients and advisors that started to question like why, what, what's the value of holding these things in the portfolio? So that was really what motivated me to hit, to really put pen to paper and say, if we're comparing a more diversified portfolio that includes a number of different uh, non-correlated asset classes, you're going to look different than your kind of standard, you know, 60-40 type stock bond portfolio, which is has been very easy to own and you can own it very cheaply. Um, and it's rewarded investors over time. The, the challenge is we know the future doesn't, necessarily have to look like the past and the math staring particularly the 40 and 60 40 in the face is not pointing to an experience over the next 10 plus years it's going to be very uh, rewarding for investors and so you know really the intent was to try to you know educate advisors on the why what and how of investing in alternatives so they can feel more confident in delivering these these valuable return streams to their clients I um, just before we get started on the content of the book, I thought I wanted to share a quick anecdote from one author to another because I have a kind of a funny story of trying to complete um, our book. Um, in order to, to get it, sort of push it to the finish line, I decided I, I needed to like get away, and so I actually went to Belize for a week to to, to crank it out. And uh, at the resort in Belize, it was a new resort, and the internet was basically non-functional. <laughs> so I was cranking, you know, call it four or five hours a day, I was kind of cranking in the book. And I really made a huge amount of progress. I was kind of 80% of the way there. And um, while I was there with a few of the locals, I was out at night drinking some of the, their Zacapa XO rum. And I, when I got to the airport in Belize City, I went to the duty-free and picked up a bottle of the Zacapa XO and I put it in my, you know, in my carry on because you uh, like, you know, I didn't want it to break and it was duty free. That's the way you have to get it. I get to Miami 
and it's a mad scramble to get to the airport. And I drop off my suitcase and I run upstairs to go through security again. And I've got this bottle of rum in my bag and they won't let me through. So I'm like, oh shit. I guess so I run back downstairs, like down the up escalator, the one-way escalator to try and see if my bag had gone through yet. It hadn't. So, you know, or, or it had, and I, I managed to sort of stuff my carry on into the check love luggage. And I put my computer in it on one side of this divider oh, I see and my going. computer in it on the other side of the divider. It's just not going where you think it is. Uh, um, and so, and then I, I run back upstairs, I go to security, I get back in Toronto, the suitcase arrives, like my carry on suitcase arrives. The bottle of rum is still in it, but somebody has stolen my laptop out of my, uh, out of my luggage, laptop gone, all of the book copy that I'd written gone. Like it, uh, yeah, it hadn't backed up anywhere. So, um, so in, in hindsight, that was about a six, eight month setback. <laughs> in hindsight, you probably should have just chugged the bottle of rum at security when they wouldn't let you through. Yeah, there's a lot of things I would would have done differently in retrospect. Let me tell you, that's like I, I, I really low down to, on the list. I almost went to Belize too to finish mine, but then my wife threatened to leave me. So <laughs> uh. <laughs> she's smart. She's a smart woman. Yeah, yeah. 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 Some choices oh, yeah, are just that. easy. That was both like that was <laughs> the funniest and most tragic I've experienced with you. That was. That's great. we had you, to rewrite the book from scratch, and that took yep. years uh, after that. Wow. It took, it took a long time to, yeah. to get the you for back. getting it done in such a short period of time, Phil. Um, it's uh, yeah. writing a book is well, it's like I, massive for us. And even going back to the initial conversations with my editor when he first reached out, it was like 2016, like late 2016 was like the first contact. So, I mean, like just the, the start of the relationship with them and then ultimately getting to this point was a, you know, like a five year period. It's kind of mind boggling, but um yeah, I mean, if anything, I, 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 I think I almost got lucky in the sense that the topic had been there for a while, but like now that we're at publication, I think the topic is as relevant as it as it's ever been in terms of mm -hmm. like when it's coming out and what the backdrop is. And so, not that I planned it that way, but hopefully got kind of lucky in that sense. Yeah, it's super timely. And maybe why don't we why don't we start jumping in? You've laid the book out into sort of three sections. So why don't you give us the mental framework? Of, of how you kind of laid the book out for, for folks to, for advisors to consider and think about, you know, what the problem is, how to solve the problem in, in today's world and environment. And as we go through the, the next decade, you've already highlighted a little bit about the 40 and the 60, 40, but give us the framework so that helps the discussion sort of categorize this discussion as people listen. It helps me categorize the discussion too. Yeah, I mean, the book really, it kicks off with with that, you know, the first chapter is literally called Hindsight is 60-40. And it dives into, like, why why are investors and allocators so fond of that 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 canonical mix? Like, why why did that become sort of the, the standard bearer of what it means to be in a balanced asset allocation? And so it kind of goes through here. Well, here's why it's been, you know, great to own. But also here are the various reasons as to why that might be challenged um, going forward. So kind of setting the table like, hey, it's time to start thinking a little bit differently about how to build a balanced portfolio and not just rely on what's worked in the past. So then kind of moving on from there in the first part is, well, if, if it's so obvious that 60-40 is challenged, you know, I don't think anyone's necessarily disputing that, you know, rates are low and, and equities are expensive. I think everyone, I, I think generally professionals kind of understand that but yet still there's this hesitancy to move away from it. And it's kind of been a security blanket in a way. And I think 
part of that is is this notion of alternatives. It's a very loaded word, and it takes a lot to unpack it because the word itself doesn't really tell you much about what what's going on under the hood. It's just a way that we categorize essentially everything that isn't stocks or bonds, and so it just it tells you more more about what something isn't than what it is. And so this this idea of it being a loaded word, and, and a lot of people have very sort of polarizing emotions around alternatives based on prior experiences or maybe you know, improper expectations that they had going in and they got burned. And then, so they're like, you know, kind of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So I think it's been a tough, I think it's been, you know, obviously institutions kind of gobble up alternatives and have very large, you know, alternatives allocations where advisors, you know, some don't, you know, traffic there at all. Some do, but they kind of do so just to like check a box and it's a pretty, you know, modest portion of the portfolio. And so, not as many advisors are really making it a, a distinct material component of their of their portfolios, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And then and then I kind of finish up that first section by just really taking a, a look through history of like there's just been this continual trend of improved, you know, better technology. We're getting smarter in terms of our overall understanding of kind of what makes markets tick. So there's there's always been this evolution of you know what portfolios look like, what new asset classes and strategies get discovered and implemented and systematized. And so it should be expected that the components in the composition of a portfolio should evolve over time too. It'd be, it'd be silly if they if they didn't. And so that kind of leads into the, the, the meat of the book in the middle, which is what I would call the what of, of alternatives. And it's the past, the present, the future of alts. And so it kind of starts with a, a discussion around the, the four what I would call kind of the four basic food groups of alts. When, when you when you say the word alternative, you tend to think of hedge funds, private equity, real estate, natural resources. Those tend to be the the, the you know the things when you close your eyes and someone says alts. Those, those tend to be the four biggest areas that show up, and then it progresses into okay, what are various sort of offshoots of those core four that are becoming more liquid, more accessible today, and and maybe sort of tangentially related to some of those. Uh, categories and so things like alternative risk premia, like systematic approaches to classic hedge fund strategies, things like insurance linked securities. That um, that type of, of risk transfer has been around for centuries, but in in terms of it being an investable asset class for a broad swath of investors, that's a pretty. It's still you know relatively in its infancy. And then you have other types of real assets outside of real estate, things like infrastructure and farmland and timberland. And then on the credit side, like private credit, sort of the, the, the cousin of private equity on the credit side uh, and different forms of that uh, that, that are continuing to, to grow in popularity. And then I capped the, cap it off there with like the future of like what are the novel asset classes that sit at the intersection of finance and technology that are um, relatively early in their life cycle or just starting to gain more mainstream adoption. So things like digital assets, but also things like art and collectibles that people have been doing for centuries, but more as kind of hobbyists um, and, and more, you know, again, to display, to own the entire piece as opposed to what we're seeing now is this trend towards fintech platforms and apps where you can fractionalize and securitize these, you know, valuable collectible, rare, rare collectibles or artworks that you can own a piece of that you're, you're buying, you're strictly buying as an investment as opposed to looking to hang on a wall or put on a shelf. And so, a, a lot to cover. I, I intended to make it quite comprehensive and, and try to cover as much ground across alternatives I could, which of course means you can't necessarily go a mile deep into each category. But I, I also 
thought it was prudent to include at the end of the book a, a uh, appendix. Uh, I call it the research rabbit hole, where for each of those categories, I included a listing of white papers, books, articles, other you know podcast episodes, uh, and kind of broke it down by category, just for the reader who says, "Hey, I'm really you know you talked in this one chapter about insurance linked securities. I want to learn more. What are the resources I can do to go go really you know deeper into that?" That asset class, so I, I included that for that purpose. And then, I think third, the third part of the book, and, and where things close, is really kind of where the rubber meets the road. Like you know, effectively, nothing in the first two parts is worth worthwhile if if the ultimate allocator, the advisor, whoever it is, delivering these portfolios to the end clients, if you can't get them comfortable and confident to stick with them, then it's it's kind of all for for nothing. And so I think that you know, I, I closed with a chapter on communication. Uh, techniques. You know, how how do we best take these concepts and strategies that are you know not as intuitive as stocks and bonds, and how do we make the unfamiliar familiar? How do we take something that seems complex at the surface, but you know, simplify the narrative or the message to the end user who who you know needs to have this effectively translated so they can understand why we're including it in their in their asset mix. So it's a, it's, a, it's a really you know, the last point is a really. Interesting. We could talk the whole show on on just that. Um, did did you um, did you think about or or point out any um, uh, you know the changing nature of asset classes as they attract different participants? Did you uh, speak to that at all, or or, or think through that? And, and any thoughts on that? A little bit. I mean, on one hand, maybe from one angle, it could be this idea that like you know yesterday's alternatives or tomorrow's you know core portfolio holdings. And so there is, and that's why it's so hard to, to wrestle with the term because it's constantly changing and evolving. And so like, I think of a handful of categories like, you know, publicly traded REITs or, you know, diversified commodities or gold or tips or high yield bonds. Like those are all things that you know, probably 20 years ago were relatively uncommon in, in a typical advisor, you know, directed portfolio, but now are, are they're, they're kind of staples today. Same thing with things like emerging markets. Um, you know, you're, you're, probably more hard pressed to find someone who doesn't have a dedicated EM allocation today than, than those that do. But, you know, in, in the earlier days, that was more of a, you know, kind of novel thing. And it was a little bit perceived as, as a lot riskier. And so it was kind of bucketed a little bit as an alternative for a period of time. And so, you know, that aspect is changing. And then there's just the nature of like, as things become more democratized, the, the nature of the asset can change itself as it becomes more financialized. Uh, I think commodities are, are a perfect example of that, where just their their behavior seems to have changed quite a bit post the you know advent of the various you know indices that track them and the the product prol proliferation that kind of followed all the earlier research on here's why commodities make sense academically as an asset class, here's how they've added value. But then you know post publication, a lot of that changed, and, and the benefits have seemed to um, you know sort sort of uh, fall off fall off a bit. I think you mentioned that oh. in the digital asset space too. I mean, just the financialization of Bitcoin through. Yeah, we're, we're starting um, to see that. I mean, right. The, just the, the I mean, it's it's amazing too. Like you've got, I mean, it fluctuates a lot just given the volatility. But like two and a half trillion, I think, across the entire like crypto complex these days. Like this is, this is these are like humongous asset classes now. Bitcoin alone, I think, is you know still over a trillion, um, if I'm not mistaken. But like that's, I mean, those are. As much as it's separate from, you know, the traditional financial infrastructure, it's very much becoming more inter intertwined and interconnected. And as larger institutions continue to build 
allocations, like there could be some knock-on effects and, and, and some of the, what, what have been some of the diversification benefits of, of Bitcoin and, and, you know, other crypto that might start to disappear as it becomes treated more like a true risk asset. Maybe those start to rise modestly over time. Um, and, and yeah, like you, like you mentioned, the futures-based products have, have, you know, already been quite popular. Like who, if, if that got to, that first one got to like a billion in two days as an ETF, which is pretty much unheard of. And so, you know, you got to believe like if and when like, SEC ever approves a spot Bitcoin ETF, like that's probably like a, yeah. a twenty a twenty billion dollar ETF in like the first you, week you or can, something. You can, you can already say that this isn't your grandfather's Bitcoin market anymore. No, no, I mean <laughs> we're we're far oh, far from the the day. <laughs> the asset class is ten years old. This isn't your grandfather's Bitcoin market. <laughs> no, in fact, in fact, when I when I, I I gave my grandpa a copy of the book uh, last week, and I think he was confused by the title. He goes, "What does all, Alligator's Edge mean?" I think he was like, <laughs> he was thinking it was alligator. He, he didn't know what the term allocator meant. So I had to mm-hmm. kind of walk him through that. So that was kind of funny. But um, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't have a dedicated crypto allocation yet. <laughs> it, it is so amazing wanna... how. Go ahead, Adam. You've been you've been chomping at the bit. Go. No, but I, let's finish whatever this theme is because I want to pull it in a slightly. No, no, no. Go. So. I was going to change it up. Okay. Um, yeah. So I just I just wanted to pull it back, right? Because you mentioned a few times in the book how. Still to this day, a very large proportion of RIAs and um, and advisors are not familiar um, with alternatives. They shy away. They have next to zero allocation to alternatives in their uh, client portfolios. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more how you came to be motivated to learn about the value of alternatives and the different styles of alternatives. Just maybe tell us a little bit about your own journey into this realm and why you found it so compelling when so many advisors shy away. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. It's some of it comes kind of full circle. Like just the fact that Cliff was able to write the forward for the book. When I think of my very, very early education on alternatives, when I was very early into my own career, I had probably only been at, you know, at Huber Financial for a couple of years at that point was was kind of playing a utility role. We were a pretty small RA and 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 very traditional stock bond portfolio. So I, I knew next to nothing about any type of alternative investment. And lo and behold, AQR launches their mutual fund business and are, are trying to um, you know build relationships with with advisors. And so they started putting on an event called AQR University to to ultimately try to try to you know coach and educate advisors on these various components within alternatives. And so that was, that was kind of my introduction to all, all this stuff. And so I, I, I credit Cliff and his whole team with just kind of that, that was sort of the foundational layer for me when I started to really think about, okay, like maybe there's more to building portfolios and just kind of toggling between stocks and bonds, you know, up, you know, dial up your risk for, you know, higher expected returns, dial down if you prefer safety and income, but that, and that's only gotten more, I think, convicted as, as we've continued to, move into uncharted waters and rate environments that, you know, I certainly have never seen in my lifetime and most people haven't. And so I think it's just, it, it's, you know, it, this the, the very practice of just building a portfolio that can deliver substantial or, or just material enough returns for our clients to meet their objectives without taking undue risk like that, that activity and, and that responsibility of ours is, is, is more challenging. Because on one hand, the, the status quo just means you know lower probability of um, types of outcomes we historically have been able to achieve. The the other option is just ramp up equity risk, but that's not a, you know maybe that's appropriate for some clients that have the 
the stomach and the time horizon for it. But for a lot of folks that, that, that can't live through those those big dips and, and might be at behavioral risk of, of panicking at the worst time if they've got too much equity exposure. And then, for, you know, there's always the, the sequence of return risk like, that can, you know, manifest for someone who's entering retirement. So I think the, the you know, door number two of, of just, okay, well, if you're, if you're worried about low expected returns on bonds, just take on more equity risk and voila, you know, kind of easier said than done. So, you know, to me, option number three has always been the most compelling. Just there's other types of risk premiums out there that, you know, have a, a high degree of, of pervasiveness and persistence and intuition as to why you should expect to make money in this particular asset or, or strategy over time, whether it's risk-based or behavioral-based. And if those, you know, return streams are, are diversifying and, and un, un independent of the rest of your portfolio, then I, overall you can build a portfolio that can withstand and, and be resilient across a wider spectrum of different future environments and we know that the, the world can play out you know more ways than one there's only one path we see but you know you know ex ante we don't know what that's going to be like and so we want to be prepared and, and we're certainly not in the in the prediction business we're not big tactical market timers for us it's about long-term allocation so in, in the absence of prediction all we can do is prepare and um, I think that you know one of the best ways to do that is just take advantage of the free lunch that diversification offers so as you were getting started in this journey into alts, what category of alts did you get most comfortable with um, early on? Like, take us through, you know, the the first kind of category of alts that you started to actually add to portfolios, and then how that has evolved over time. Sure. Yeah, I think it was largely, um, I, I guess, first uh, given the nature of, of kind of the typical client profile who we work with is. You know things like hedge funds and private equity. Just like you know, mm -hmm. our, our our vast majority of our clientele is more like accredited investor um, levels of AUM as opposed to the, the above QP. So we we and we just didn't have the in-house you know personnel or expertise in managing you know limited partnership structure vehicles and that whole process. So we we really focused more on the liquid side. That's what our clients were used to. You know, there, there was a growing number of, of products being made available, you know, whether it be ETF, mutual fund, um, and, and interval funds, which we can get to later, which is kind of opens up the illiquidity basket a little bit for for, um, for for our investors. And so I think largely it was like, hey, what are, what are some of these classic hedge fund strategies that have this intuitive risk premium that you can deliver at a lower cost um, and, and be more of like that, that beta as opposed to trying to identify an alpha oriented manager just so we can, you know, so things like managed futures would probably, I think that was like, maybe it might've been the first one that we allocated to a couple of years later, like one that we got very comfortable with cap bonds um, as a diversifier. Um, and that was at the time, a relatively new asset class to, to the 40 X space um, and both daily liquid mutual fund format, as well as interval fund, depending on the type of insurance link security that you're accessing. So that, again, I, I think that, given how we think about building portfolios like that, just there's a lot to like uh, in terms of what that offers, uh, in terms of the, those truly kind of structural correlation properties that, that, that it has. Um, and, and then other areas like event-driven strategies and um, more recently as we've gotten more comfortable with the interval fund structure, things like uh, direct lending in the credit space or uh, combinations of public and private real assets as well. Um, that have some 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 degree of inflation sensitivity to them. Yeah, I hear echoes of um, a lot of the sort of best practices 
espoused by guys like um, you know Larry Swedrow and um, and obviously Cliff, right? And uh, Auntie and out of um, uh, what is it? What was his book? Expected uh, Returns. Yeah, like I, I've I've written about that book before. I, I refer to that as my investing bible. Like that's probably been the most influential book that in, in my career in terms of just like having a number of aha moments that came out of it. it took me a while to get through it. It's a pretty it's a pretty it's dense sick. book, but it's mm -hmm. uh, you know I, I, and then um, a cool kind of story there was that like that you know given how much that influenced me and Anti actually works at AQR now. Um, so as I was sharing the draft of the book with Cliff and his team, I, I word came back that Auntie got a copy of it and read it and had some kind words to say. So that that was kind of a cool. Uh, That's gratifying. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That's neat. Fantastic. So, as you're journeying through, Adam, did you have some follow-up questions on that? Is that go for it? So, as you're journeying through this process of um, building in these alternative asset classes and managers into portfolios. And you talk about this in the third part of the book a little bit, the communications and things like that. Can, can you build on that? How do you, how do you get the client across the, the cavern, if you will, on this new thing that's going to be in their portfolio, that their friends don't have, that they don't have anyone to commiserate with. And, and, and what, what, what were the major challenges that you found even though you took the steps to communicate, what, what, what were some of the feedback loops that you still found were challenging? I think that'll be very helpful for the uh, advisors out there that are listening. Yeah, I think a, a few things come to mind. I think one, one hurdle, particularly, you know, would be cost, um, per, you know, especially given the way that we manage money in the stock and bond sleeves of our portfolios, where we very much lean into you know index funds and factor-based strategies. Like we don't really utilize any traditional stock picking type strategies. So like clients are just they, they've been accustomed to us using very very low cost funds in, in, in the stock and bond sleeves. And so I think that kind of stuck out for clients. Well, they would see the expense ratios and alternatives, which are inherently higher. And so I think finding ways to communicate like just because you know something's higher expense doesn't mean it's not worthwhile doesn't mean you should just blindly pay whatever and that you know you know there, there's no strategy so good that um, a, a high enough fee can't you know erode it but at the same time I think if you're, if you're strictly limiting yourself to you know the, the Vanguard and iShares expense type ratios out there then then you're effectively cutting off an entire universe of, of strategies where there just aren't those types of, of you know rock bottom expense options so I think cost is one thing where we need to kind of contextualize it in terms of like when is it appropriate to pay up a little bit and thinking about overall portfolio costs and not necessarily individual line item costs and also like what are we getting in exchange for that added cost in terms of diversification benefits and, and things like that so cost is, is a, was a common thing that would come up obviously you know the more line items you have in a portfolio um, the more likely it is that you're going to have one thing sticking out in a given period of time that doesn't isn't doing well um, so there, there's that line item risk that, that comes up um, and so it's like it's this notion of trying to coach clients to focus on the portfolio as a whole as opposed to the individual holdings which of course is easier said than done but trying to communicate in a way like you know sports analogies tend to work you know well so whether it's football and you say okay if, if your stocks are your offense and your bonds are, are defense think of alts as kind of the special teams or if you want to go the the basketball route it's you know it's think about opening the newspaper and looking at the stat sheet from the prior night's game and you know how did all these players do and you could focus 
solely on the points scored column, and you could look down and see this player, oh, they had two points. Well, man, they must not have had a great game. Well, did they have five steals? Did they have 12 rebounds? And so it's like there's other ways for assets to contribute to an outcome than just the, the highest returns. Um, and so I think I think understanding, like, like much like every sports team has players that play a different role, each component of the portfolio plays a different role. And so you shouldn't expect some of these to outperform stocks long term, but that's not necessarily why we own them. Um, I also think it's, you got to set proper expectations for clients ahead of time because if absent that, they're going to start to develop their own expectations. And particularly for something they're not accustomed to or familiar with, they're they could be wildly off from reality um, and, and they could give it a short leash. So it, it, it's incumbent on the advisor to really, you know, take that front end time to educate and um, find ways to, you know, help them frame and understand like, here's how we're thinking, here's where we're carving it from, you know, here's how we're sizing it. Here's what we have in terms of our longer term, you know, risk and return expectations. Here's a type of environment you might expect this to do poorly. Here's a type of environment you might expect this to do well. Um, and just be, be honest and say, like, look, these these alts, they're not a silver bullet. They're not a panacea. Like, this is, you know, it'd be great if we found the one magical asset class that just worked in every single environment and did so in a very consistent, non-volatile fashion, but that's not reality. So every, everything in the portfolio has got its flaws, but when you blend them together, the idea is that the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing effort to... to you know, get get people on board, but I think you know over the years we've certainly made a great deal of progress there. And, and in an ongoing effort, do you, what's the cadence that you like there? Is it monthly communication? Is it quarterly communication? How do you go about sort of stressing all of these points that you've made about you know good behavior from the standpoint of holding this balanced portfolio? Is it just you know every what's the cadence? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's, it's, you know, it's interesting because like my, me and my team, like we're the investment research, research arm for Savant and, and we're a centralized resource for the entire firm and all the, you know, 70 plus advisors that, that work for us. And so, um, you know, they, they can lean on us in any which way to help them in their client and prospect conversations. And so uh, it, it varies. I mean, it, it, we produce a lot of content internally. So a number of different resources that advisors can can you know, uh, tap into to share with clients or walk them through different things. They can bring us into meetings if they want to help, you know, retain clients, you know, help close business if they think it'll be valuable to kind of have one of the, the you know, key investment people in the conversation. So um, we're, we're just kind of there and we, when we try to like, you know, check in with them quite a bit, check in with advisory leadership, like get a, you know, get our finger on the pulse of what, what's, you know, what, what's going on in client meetings, what are the topics that are coming up, how can we use that feedback to inform where we spend our time and effort in building, you know, talking points and collateral and uh, different forms of content? So it's a constant feedback loop between the investment and advisory teams within the firm. Um, I want to maybe give a nod to some of the questions. So um, Jim Carroll's asking what the most unusual alt asset um, is that you have placed in client portfolios. Okay. Well, hello to Jim. <laughs> Good to hear from you. Um, yeah, it was, it's hard to, yeah, I guess it's in the eye of the, eye of the beholder, but in terms of like kind of our core alts mix, I guess the one that's probably least familiar would be, would be that cat catastrophe reinsurance. 
asset class. Um, it's just, yeah, I think for some clients when we introduce it, it's just like, like oh, like this exists. Like, um, whereas other things, like other things are very like, you know, tangible. Like if people understand credit, like private credit, because they've had public credit in their portfolio for, for many years. Or like, just like something like, you know, real assets, like <coughs> infrastructure, farmland, timberland, like people get that, it's familiar to them. So there's less of a, a education hurdle there. Whereas, um, so, you know, I don't know if, nothing we do is, you know, too exotic, um, I, I, I would say, but um, hopefully. Have I you been looking into like um, class action legal claims or, um, that, that's another asset class that I think has a lot of really interesting qualities to it and has an inflation component to it, which um, we've sort of at the periphery begun to kick the tires on. Have you looked at that at all? Not, not closely at all. No, no. Uh, we're, we're, we're always looking at stuff, but we're, you know, we also want to make sure that like anything that we're looking at has generally like broad applicability to, to our client base. Um, so we, we kind of, we tend to stay in our lane for the most part in terms of mutual funds, ETFs and interval funds, just cause it, we can plug those easier into, into model portfolios. But we're also spending time in other areas where it might be more, more client specific and, and less broad based across the firm. But, you know, we, we, we look at various types of niche credit strategies and, you know, private equity stuff, digital assets. We're spending time in all those areas um, internally, whether, whether or not it ultimately manifests into something that we roll out as a, as a service offering, you know, TBD, but um, yeah, we're, we're constantly what, looking. What are, what are some of the things that you look at to make that sort of discernment <clears throat> decision on, oh, yeah, this is something that we can get into at this time, right? We're, we're early, digital assets being one, or as, as Adam uh, pointed out, the litigation side of things. Like, what is there a framework that you have there that you go through? Is it is it more, you know, sort of nuanced? Like, how do you make the decision? And, and is, you know, do you tend to go with larger managers that are more sort of uh, uh, embedded in the space? Do, do you tend to to skew to, you know, sort of smaller managers that are on the, on the uptick, any, any insights in there, how, how you actually kind of you know, bridge that decision making gap? Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely varies. I, you know, we have a combination of, of probably lesser known call it boutiques, but also like, you know, very large, well-known, you know, kind of brand name managers. So it might just be dependent on the strategy. Like, you know, I, I think we all, we also have to be mindful that, um, we're, we're a big RA. Um, and so any, any allocations we make, like we need to be mindful of, of fund size and capacity, capacity issues right. just cause you know, we're, it's hard to believe, but I, when, when we merged with Stefan, I want to say it was like, we combined at the time. This is not really like a year and a half ago. I think it was like eight and a half billion. You know, our, our, our Huber side was about a billion and a half, but we just, we've closed a few, three deals this year and just market growth and new client additions. Or we're actually, I think, once this most recent one closes, um, like fourteen billion, roughly. So it's right. it's a lot of money to, especially when it's like largely model portfolio based. Like you know, we need to, you know, be, be comfortable and confident that we can plug it in um, without any un, unintended consequences. Right. So you know, it's interesting at that side. Capacity constraints for sure make it make a difference, and you've got to think about that in the context of a fourteen billion dollar RA. Sorry, Rod. Go ahead. No, I'm just yeah. thinking with regards to capacity for, you know, it, it's interesting when you think about 
trying to find the right alternative manager. And, you know, an alternative manager that's way too big is probably something that's not great because it might be constrained as to what, what he, he or she can trade. And therefore, you might not find a niche or uh, alternative managers. But on the smaller side, you, might, you can't represent 25% of their AUM, right? So there's a, there's a lower bound of the fund that you want to invest in. And there's an upper bound too. There's like a nice little sweet spot for an $8 billion yeah. organization that you need to, that kind of, I'm, it must whittle down at least it makes it easier for you, right? To be well, to in, be in some cases too. It's like in some, in some cases there aren't many choices. You know, like 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 some yeah. of the, some of the research just starts with the asset class itself. Like, oh, like this looks interesting. Now, who actually does this, and who can we talk to? Like the reinsurance example. Like, there's like a very small handful of players there in the, in the 40x space. So it's not like you're, you know, compared to something like managed futures, where there's at least a, you know a dozen plus. Um, 40 act funds, so it's, it's a wider universe of managers to diligence and, and vet. Um, so, so yeah, you know, some some of that um, plays into it as well. So, I'm just curious, you know, talk a lot about the 60/40 and what we're going to see in the future. And uh, there's a lot of talk by alternative investment managers that you know people will see once the next decade comes and we're going to have a low return. The 60/40 will be dead. We're talking about that all the time. What we forget is that the 60/40 was dead, right? Like from 2000 to 2010. It was dead on arrival. They had two fifty. Well, I guess sixty forty would have had, would have had a 40 percent drawdown, in one or two of those drops, um, and yet it didn't die, right? So you've been able to kind of transition out of that. Your firm, your alternatives, nearly every continues to be purely sixty forty with your alternatives. I did a presentation with seventy five FAs yesterday. And I'm, the first question I ask, how much, how many of you have more than a percent allocation of alternatives? And 75% of them said that they, they don't have yeah. any allocations to alternatives. Re- recency, bu- re- recency bias is a hell of a thing. And um, if you think of like the, just like the modern investing, like zeitgeist, it's all about how can we get costs as low as possible? And so I think that also is a key factor as to why there's such a focus on things like 60, 40, because you could do it, you know. You can do it super simply with a couple of funds, and and I think, I think if, uh, there's a large subset of advisors that are, are weary of of um, moving away from simplicity because they 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 don't view the cost benefit analysis as being worthwhile. Like for them, like for some, like the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Like why why should I put all this effort into like understanding all these like different asset classes that I've never used before, and then the extra work I've got to go into educating clients when hey, I've got this really simple well, portfolio that's worked let me for a just, while. <laughs> let me just say, if you're going to call yourself a fiduciary, that you're, you're triggering me, Phil. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm trying to maintain my control right now. Just going to back someone, away a little bit here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> someone talked need, about need to get, this. we got to get you a refill on your cocktail there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> idea, but, the audacity but, to suggest but, that I'm going to smother myself in the in the blanket of simplicity and low cost but call myself a fiduciary is an outrage like as a fiduciary what you are at that point is you are a low cost vanguard blackrock salesman that's what you can are. i defend can i defend those fiduciaries for a second just and then get back to my point because i can think try Look, I get it, right? But at the end of the day, I'm sorry. This is the 20 minutes where the result boys argue with one another. And, and this, is, this, is this is the content I'm here for. This is why I, <laughs> yeah. I signed I up. I, I wanted triggered. to see the battle royal take place. Yeah, I did say I was triggered. 
So <laughs> yeah, yeah that's fine. But I think again, look, everybody invests. Everybody chooses a, a, a fiduciary, or most of these guys are fiduciary. Fine, we can talk about what a fiduciary actually means and what it is in our in our business. But these are relationship managers that are trying to do the best job for the investors. And the truth is that just as unsophisticated as the investment managers may be, their clients are that unsophisticated. And if we want them to stick to something, a 60-40 portfolio for the vast majority of the American population may be just right. And in fact, as a fiduciary, if they're going to stick to a 60-40 portfolio over something else that has a lower amount, then they're absolutely killing it as they apply their fiduciary responsibility, Mr. Philbrick. They will and take I, a 35% percent let me know and when I, and I, I can rebut. I, I sympathize with them in, in that they're, they, you know, the, the advisor's job is also to be a behavioral coach and get the, whatever portfolio they're in, whether it's 60-40 or something else, they got to get people to stick with it. So if they feel that they have a, a better chance of getting someone to stick with something a little bit more simpler like that, I, I understand that feeling of like, hey, like, not to mention there's, a, you know, you guys remember, like there was a huge push for liquid alts post-GFC, of course, like not not a year before the big crash, after the you know, horse was already out of the barn door. Then everybody wanted diversification when equities were about to go on their big, huge bull run. And so that early 2010s period saw a ton of liquid alt issuance and it was just like a, a land grab. And so I think advisors, like it was a sexy story. They were like, okay, I'm going to test this out. But like they weren't, they were doing like very, you know, initial kind of due diligence, but it was, they were like, oh, this has alternative in the name. Sure. Like whether I don't care if it's long short equity or managed futures or global macro or you know blah 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 like it's got alternative it's got a cool it's got a good track record over the last year like good enough for me and so I think there was a lot of firms launching product that probably didn't belong in the alt business but they saw an opportunity to you know just to, to, to you know gather AUM and I think a lot of advisors got burned and didn't have a good experience not necessarily in some cases because the funds they chose didn't work out well. In other cases, it was because they set expectations too high. They thought, okay, like this is, this is the panacea. Like so, I think when equities continue to march higher, they just were like, why do we, why do we continue to own these? So I think it's hard once you've had one bad experience and then you've moved away from it to then revisit that again. And, and I totally agree. And it's easy to sell what's worked best in the last decade. Yeah. And it's easy to sell what people understand, i.e. low fees and stocks and bonds. Note the language is sell each time. The role of a, do, of a fiduciary is not to sell. The role of a fiduciary is to understand these concepts and, and, and products deeply and to allocate on behalf of a less educated client because the client can't be educated enough to understand these concepts. Come on, like, honestly. Now, I get it. It, it's true that they may be able to stick with it and in the fiduciary's responsibility if they're and this is what makes it hard because you're truly not a fiduciary when you're beholden to the whims of the client so it's tough this is why it's gone to best interests rather than a fiduciary standard which is a much better standard so in, in the best interest of the client that, that more conceptually grasp the idea that there are some behavioral vulnerabilities that the client has. And I do accept that. So I don't. Yeah. Don't speaking of selling, I just, you, speaking of selling, but, I just want to lie of advisors out there that are 60, 40 that are watching right now that course, I do care course. about you and I get why you need to sell. <laughs> I, I need to sell. And Mike's killing my sales right now. Um, <laughs> I think, <laughs> this is, I think I want to bring you into this no. world through, 
through, without judgment and making sure that you get an opportunity to read Phil's book, just I'm, to bring you into our world slowly but surely, agree, help yeah. educate yourself so that you can have the stick to itness to help your clients and so that they could have the stick to itness. So, yeah, no, um, I, that I, Phil, you know, yeah. having a portfolio that looks a lot different than your peers, like it, it's, you know, there's, there's purists, there's careerists to that. And I think it takes a certain degree of courage and, and, a willingness to be, you know, independent to to move forward with with something like this. So well, that's what really what I was trying to aim for with the book was just look. I I, I know not everybody's gonna adapt yeah. this type of mindset, like, and that's fine. Like, not everybody has to to do the same. But for for those that are curious and and, and want to do the best by their clients and want to be more comfortable with the space, so so that they can start to make those you know incremental changes that they you know hopefully you know view this as a good resource to, to help them along that journey. Well, that chapter 12, it, cultivating the client experience through courage and communication, I think. It's okay. Courage yeah. and communication. It requires courage on all sides. It requires courage for you, the advisor, to actually do something different that you know is, is correct. You, you don't know the, the state to say that you don't know the future, to be able to add something that's going to zig when this is zig when everything else sags. And then the courage of your client to put their trust in you because they're not going to understand it as Mike alluded to. It's your job to understand it and make sure that they're comfortable with it. So I think that that chapter really hit the nail on the head for me in terms of, I think the most important chapter out of all of them is that, oh, yeah. is and, how are you going to get to stick? Yeah, honestly, you, you hit on it earlier, Phil, like in the absence of value, we negotiate price and it's really hard to discern value, right? It's really hard to discern the value that a, a non-correlated differentiated asset class brings to a portfolio over a full market cycle. That's really when you've hard. only seen half the cycle. Yeah, it's yeah. really hard to do. Right? Yeah. And so, so, I mean, so especially I'm not, when the I'm, first part of the cycle just keeps going and going. And yeah. Going. yeah, 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 <laughs> that's right. Death yeah, by a thousand I, cuts. I, I, like this is so hard. I'm not trying to um, sort of uh, diminish the difficulty of the task, right? I'm not, I'm, it's a really hard task. So. You know, I just think that you really, have, if you're just focusing on fees and stocks and bonds, I mean, you know, that that has that has its fair share of vulnerabilities as well as all I'm saying. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's like you said, there's there's a lot big difference between price and value. So, so speaking of of you know, you mentioned that it's really hard to go against your peers and what everybody else is doing. What's been interesting, you mentioned how AQR brought you into the fold, and that was kind of the, the beginning steps of you understanding alternatives. I think DFA was the first group to really say, okay, you're not alone. There's a small wolf pack here. We're going to bring you into the fold, and we're going to indoctrinate you, and this is your church, and it's religion. And I have yet to the day been able to convert a DFA advisor, okay, ever. <laughs> it's, it's incredible the job that these guys have done to move away from your peers being 60-40 and your, your, your actually small peer group being 100% EFA. And I think AQR has done a great job of that as well. And I wonder, you know, if, if you're seeing a shift toward a new group of advisor groups that, that really bring in the alternative space and, 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 you know, have found a pack that they can lean on for that strength and courage that you need. Yeah, I think, you know, because, you know, we, we've, you know, full disclosure, we were a, a partner with Dimensional and they've, they've been a great partner for us for many years now. And, and it's, it's a large relationship, but, we, but we're not a um, 100% DFA firm. But I, what, I, what I have found is relative to maybe 10 years ago, 
there's you don't see as many like DFA only shops these days. Um, I, I think more and more advisors are, you know, they they certainly value the partnership and think they're hey, there's various spots in the portfolio where we want to plug them in, and they can be a a great way to access like you know whatever asset class it might be. But um, just this idea of like hey, there, there's a lot of great um, solutions out there, great managers. Um, we want to just be open minded and, and um, you know again we're I think I think there's a risk to a business as well uh, of being just a vehicle for access to a, a particular fund family and so um, especially now that now they have ETF so anyone in the world who wants DFA funds they've, they've yeah, got the ability true. to do it so yeah I, I mean I, I have the utmost respect for them and they, they you know they do a great job but I, I think you are starting to see like a, a small like you said a smaller wolf pack like I think of folks like Larry and and the, and the others at Buckingham like. A lot of similarities with what we're doing and, and what they're doing, and so, um, like I, I, you know, keep Jared over there, Kaiser, he and I touch base frequently and, and kind of check in, share ideas, and so um, there, there's other, you know, a number of other RIAs that I think are kind of doing similar things. Like you, you can have that kind of core part of your portfolio that you, you do have an emphasis on low cost and tax efficiency and, and you know, factor tilts and, and the like. Um, but that the, there, there's this kind of third pillar where you know, if you can, if you're willing to get off that, you know, hump of not everything has to be low cost and not everything has to be daily liquid, you can start to really open up a menu of, of choices that, that, you know, gives you a little more, more colors to paint with, so to speak. So um, I think, yeah, I think more and more you're seeing a trend in that direction is that uh, it can be a bit of a barbell approach, I guess. Corey was asking, yeah. um, what you've changed your mind about the most with respect to investing at all. So anything come to mind in terms love, of things that you, question. yeah, it's a good question. I love, I love yeah. this question. Like what, as you were investigating and, and writing the book and reading all the research, what were, what was there anything that you had a 180 on or an epiphany or just changed your mind about? I would say, um, you said Corey asked that question. Yeah. yeah, if it goes well, I'm taking I, credit. If not, it's Corey. Is he, is he on live right now? Yeah, yeah he's, he's on live. He couldn't, he couldn't join us on camera? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he man. can. You want, you, he, you he's like, I, want, I want him to tell me that to my yeah, face. You know what? He, 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 didn't want to, he didn't want to be the fifth best looking guy on the, on the screen. So. <laughs> With his shirt off. Totally. The best looking guy. Too. Yeah, like doing, doing push-ups <laughs> in the background or yeah. something. The uh, dad bod is making a comeback. So the dad bod is <laughs> I think Corey with his freaking shredded body is out. Nobody likes that anymore. <laughs> no, I, I think like in terms of one, and this is actually an area that, that Corey and I have discussed is like just this notion of, of as different assets become more financial, you know, financialized that, that their prior characteristics can and, and will change over time. And so I think, I think just, it's not a 180. I would say I would just like have a higher degree of expectation that just because, because there's been a certain diversification property in the past that you can't always expect that to continue in the future. And I think the, the parallel will probably, the parallel probably to gold and commodities will, will eventually be crypto in, in terms of um, it just becoming more, yeah, becoming more intertwined in the, in the system. One of the um, things that Cliff raised in the intro and which I also noticed as I went through the book was that you gave more credence to privates than I might be inclined to just maybe what's like, cause it does seem like, you know, private equity, private credit has just been, um, has had the same tailwinds, perhaps even to a greater extent than public equities. 
um, over the last decade or so, um, arguably over the last couple of decades, and has seen the same outsized returns. And so, you know, why are we not, why don't we have the same expectation of kind of mean reversion or muted returns in private equity and private credit over the next cycle um, that we have for public equities? I wonder if you have any color there. I think there may be. I mean, I, I, a number of folks like, like you know, Dan uh, Rasmussen at Verdad and others have, have, you know, written at length about just the elevated multiples in PE and relative to prior years and that, that you know, you're, you know, just just the amount of, of growth of the asset class and, and constant institutional presence in, in that you probably have to ratchet down return expectations there. I think what, and maybe this kind of gets back to the 180 thing, what, what I've come around to a little more is like almost a, like a flip-flop on this notion of an illiquidity premium in the sense that is almost the inverse in that like something like private equity that, you know, eliminates your ability to get in your own way over a you know decade plus long time horizon is, is a good thing behaviorally um and, and so we, we don't do a ton like a ton of private equity stuff with, with clients and that was probably the area i was sort of least you know educated on going into writing the book but i so i spent a fair amount of time there but you know by no means am i the the, the be-all end-all expert within pe but i i think i think there can be a role i just i just don't really view it as an alternative um I think of it much differently than a lot of the other assets that we've discussed on the call in terms of something that can provide a, a truly uncorrelated return stream. Whereas I would, I would just view as, as an extension of an equity allocation that if someone's got the time horizon and the ability to, to withstand that type of illiquidity and, and the patience, then it, you know, it could be a good thing for them to own. It could be complementary to their public market you know, bucket. Um, and, and so I, I think they're, you know, for, for the right client, if, they, if they're, large enough to access the space and, and have an interest. I think there's, you know, certainly a, a potential role in the portfolio there. What about um, tail hedging? You know, we certainly over the last three, four years have observed a lot more market behavior that you could definitely categorize as sort of tail events, right? Mm -hmm. um, another way to say that is that the kind of kurtosis of the market has been increasing through time and, so I'm just wondering, do you have anything in the book that um, that deals specifically with this kind of shift in market character, or maybe just how do you think about this in general? Is there a role for these types of strategies in the portfolio, and if so, what is? It? I didn't go there much. Um, I, I wish it's funny. Like, I, it, I'm, not, I'm not sure I want to commit to doing a second book, but I think it would be interesting, maybe in a few years, to do like a second edition of this kind of an update because it, it, it was just funny. Like, like your guys' paper with Corey on return stacking, like. When you guys put that out, I'm like, ah, damn it! I wish I would have like, like included more on this idea of return stacking in the book because that's a great. I think that concept pairs super well with alternatives. So I was like, okay, well, if I ever get to version two, I'll make sure there's a. I'll talk to your publisher. Return stacking. So we can, we can, we can stop the printing. Too. I mean, yeah, yeah. If, you know, if, <laughs> Everyone's doing a mini book. We'll just do a little mini book action. <laughs> yeah, so I think, um, like things like tail hedging, like that's not my background or expertise. I think there's vague mention in one of the chapters of just. Volatility is an asset class, both as a as a you know seller of volatility to capture a, a you know variance risk premium or, or a you know long volatility approach where there might be some some carry costs, but but obviously much greater diversification benefits. So I, I spoke a little bit to just the different forms of volatility uh, strategies that are out there, but didn't really dive too deep uh, in, into that concept. So what do you think of? Sorry, I know I'm taking over again, but what, what do you what do you what do you think of of the potential for 
overcrowding in this um, in the alts space, right? You know, it's funny. I, I you know, two years ago, I, I there was a reason to to be concerned about overcrowding, and I mean, it seems like you know, alts kind of went through this this nuclear winter um, for two or three years, um, and have seen somewhat of a revival over the last eighteen months or so. Um, but I still think it's an interesting question to contemplate, sort of who is who's left on the other side of the trade, and then have you given any thought to some of the um, some of the the dynamics that they're involved in? Mike Green's thesis about the rise of passive and, and the role of passive flows in in creating sort of divergence in stock portfolios that will that will perpetuate some of these um, anti-factor programs. Just, just wondering if you've sort of given any thought to that and, and whether that might impact your view on how to position alternatives going forward. Yeah, I think especially for a lot of the, like, the alternative risk premium stuff, I think crowding you know, has been a concern. And maybe not as much today, just given that there have there were you know, been a few lean years. And so a lot of people have probably exited the space that, that were, were in it. Um, and so I think I, that, that might have been an area that I, I think I included a quote from you guys from, from one of your articles where for, for the, like, whether it be like, you know, the, the value factor or some of these other, you know, alternative risk premium, like they, they're, they're, once they get discovered, a lot of those early returns get compressed and then they maybe even have a really, you know, bad few negative years. But then as, as capital exits, that can kind of, you know, get to a more, longer term level where there is still compensation for the the risk premium but not not to the degree that it had been um in its earlier years before it was documented and there you know a lot of people were tracking it so i think as long as there's that into intuitive um you know risk premium story behind it i think you should expel, you still expect something to be there long term but it will require patience and you probably need to be humble and modest about you know whatever size it is it's not going to be like it you know like it was in the, in the heyday so right like a new like a new baseline effectively yeah, a new yeah, baseline yeah. and it's still non-correlated it has a deep an, an okay sharp ratio the non-correlation with an okay sharp ratio raises a sharp ratio yeah it's just not going to be a non-correlation with a phenomenal sharp ratio anymore yeah. so i have a follow-on question that's actually written down and i'm glad you've gone in this direction adam as an allocator as a as a person in charge of you know sort of stewarding the 14 billion dollars of mindset have you have you encountered a, a, a scenario where you're targeting a certain factor and you want the transparency and so you're getting a provider that's giving you the transparency and the factor exposure but all of a sudden they've become too successful and there's so much money following this and it's so transparent that now there's other folks front running that group have you and, and have you encountered it if the answer is yes or no, it doesn't really matter. When you encounter it, what would you do about it as a as a as a manager in the space who's allocating to portfolios like this, or how would you might detect it, etc.? Are, are you thinking more in like the long only space, uh, or or in in more alternative? Really both. Like if you're long short, long only, right? Someone has come up with a factor portfolio, but they've clearly delineated. You know, they've given transparency. They've got low cost. But they've also now had an avalanche of money coming. And so with an avalanche of money comes a challenge where if everybody knows what you're doing before you're doing it because you've clearly defined how you're doing it, it, it can now get front run by others. And this has happened in a few scenarios within various 
um, ETFs and funds. But I don't know if you've experienced that yet. And 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 if you haven't, you probably will. So how might you handle it? How much you yeah, think I mean, about I, that as the head of, of someone who's setting up these alt strategies? Yeah, I think we we haven't necessarily experienced it like firsthand that I can think of it a good example that would fall under that. But you know, I think it's something you just want to be mindful of. You want to be mindful of of just overall asset growth. Like it's you know great as an asset manager to to have good flows and be taking in money, but there's always the risk of growing you know growing growing too fast too soon and um, you know size being the enemy of performance at times. So um, you know that's always a consideration of just like wanting to just have you know continual dialogue with the manager on what they think appropriate levels of capacity might be if there are any considerations around you know harder soft closes things of that nature so you know it's something we, we want to keep in mind and, and just you know you'd be aware of but in terms of like you know kind of who might be front running in them and how I, I you know i i don't know if there's a great answer to how we would identify that and um avoid Spoiler it. alert it's us it is. Oh, well. <laughs> All right, could we, could, we do that, could we do that video again with the phone? Yeah. And the, <laughs> is that for another, time for another commercial? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> just kidding. Hit you it. know, one of the one of the one of the interesting things about um, including a, like a, a reasonable slug of alts in a portfolio. I mean, it's hard enough to come up with reasonable capital market expectations for stuff like retirement planning um, when you're dealing with traditional assets that have very long histories. Um, but then how do you incorporate alts into portfolios and then try to set capital market expectations for the purpose of planning? Yeah, I mean, it's something we have to do for obvious reasons. And so we would do try to, for each asset we own in our models is have a, we, we use 20 year expected return numbers. So we're not like on the seven to 10 year range, like a, you know, a GMO or, or, or what have you. But um, so, so there, there's, we, we kind of use a blend for, for most traditional assets of like, here's an expectation over the, you know, the next seven to 10 years, here's a longer term expectation where you account for a little bit more mean reversion um, to historical levels. And so, you know, the, I think the 20 year numbers work. I mean, obviously it's a very, there's no hard science to it. You know, you're, you know, it's going to be wrong in some direction, but I think given the time horizons of the plans and of the folks that we work with, like we, we can't build the, portfolio return assumptions for their 30 year retirement based on what we think is going to happen over the next five years. To, to your question on like for, for the stuff that's not got as long of data, um, it's, it is tougher. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, obviously if you've got a hundred years or, you know, of data to use for an asset class, you can get a, a lot higher degree of confidence, I think, and, and just historical realized returns and risk, whereas something where maybe it's 20 years of data. And then particularly for things that are, long short and then you've got to obviously like implement that in practice with a fund as opposed to an index and account for additional trading costs like you know that that can be a lot tougher to come up with like what what is the actual number we should be assuming here so i think like with anything it's we we know it's not a perfect science but but we just try to be what we think is fairly conservative in what those assumptions are and i think that's probably the best you can do is you you have you you account for some decay um from those historical numbers and you just try to try to be conservative about it but um yeah, yeah it's a hard it's, problem i'm not really it is you know, yeah i don't, I don't you, think there's you're, a you're not gonna a have way like, to the perfect it. answer but yeah, yeah. We, we obviously struggle with the same thing and it's uh, mm -hmm. it's a hard problem and i think um erring on the side of being conservative is probably the right direction to err but um recognizing that there's a wide range of potential outcomes is probably the 
most productive way to view the it. The challenge, though, too, is that I mean, there is there is there is a challenge with being with being too conservative. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So it's, you're sacrificing consumption so too by being too conservative. Right? Well, that's so, why, yeah, like, yeah. like, that's why I think, like, the you know, I, I've, I have a lot of respect for GMO, but I think if if you were to take like their like super you know pessimistic asset class assumptions and start putting those into you know Money Guide Pro or whatever financial planning software you're using for someone's retirement plan, like, I think you're 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 being too bearish there, and, and that and that's got a really negative effect as well. And so I. You know, again, like like there's a delicate balance to try to strike with with all this stuff. Um, yeah, because that, that 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 that's not a great outcome either. If, if someone's not willing to spend the money that they've spent their whole life accruing and earning in their retirement that's... because they're too they're too afraid of running out for it because we've put this like assumption of like you know zero returns or whatever. Well, this is know? the thing about so that ends up being a mini max right? regret optimization instead of like a, you know, max utility optimization. But anyways, sorry, Rodrigo. I'm just with all these assumptions. I mean, we're not dealing with a, a pension plan or a, that has to have a certain amount of distribution every year. And they have, they have these expenses that you need to liability match. When we talk about human beings and private wealth, the only choice is to iterate year in, year out. And then I think you spend most of your time asking people to spend their own money. I mean, people that have made it far enough to invest with us and, and save their money with us are generally at a point where they're going to leave some money behind. And, you know, you can be as conservative as you want, but you, you got to push them to spend. And then yeah, within awesome. that, they, they, they every year, for, like, something new happens. Like, hey, can I, can I do this? We're like, yeah, you can do yeah. this and you should do this. Because this is this is what this is all for, you know. That's yeah. exactly right, and and it's just you know human nature is one of being more conservative, and also the other thing that just doesn't jive is that every year there's something new that happens—a new expense or new windfall, or somebody in your family died, and you got the uh, you, you got some money coming your way, or you end up working ten years longer, or you end up—it's right. it's so individual. It's, the idea of, of creating a, a uh, financial plan that's 54 pages incredibly oh, yeah, precise we, that gives you what you're gonna how you're gonna spend your money over the next thing, 30 years seems a little absurd and that's how that that's how it used to work and i i love to use the the word iterate because that's what you have to do mm -hmm. it's it, the, the days of like printing off that big document and saying okay like, let's talk in a few years like no like that's why that and i think our, our advisors do such a wonderful job here is, is like there is that you know, frequency of meetings and you're always just updating and staying in touch and like, Hey, what's changed? What hasn't, what's new? Like you just, you have to count. It's, you know, that's why they call it planning and not a plan. Like it's an exercise, an ongoing exercise that you have to, um, account for. So, um, so I think as long as the advisors are doing that, plan. Plan. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a financial plan organization. Yeah, we're a financial plan. <laughs> Oh, you want to planning? No, I'm sorry. This is a one and done. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> you're planned. You're done. <laughs> Can I ask? Uh, I just want to talk about structure a little bit. Uh, I, one of the most interesting areas for me that I, I've yet to fully wrap my mind around is these interval funds. I cannot tell you the amount of time that people and advisors come up and it's like, oh man, some of my strategy would be perfect in an interval fund. And I, I can't seem to understand why. So, can you give me? A use case, like what are interval funds? Why are they useful? And specifically, what alternatives fit better in that structure? Yeah, they, they become useful when, when so you, you guys, I think you're aware that like, you know, the, the, the 40 Act regulations for a mutual fund, you can only have up to what, 15% in, 
in securities that are deemed to be illiquid. And so something like the interval fund does not have those restrictions because it doesn't have to offer daily redemption ability. And so the interval funds, you know, offer to repurchase um, typically up to 5% of outstanding shares uh, quarterly. So up to 20% a year. And, and but that's not without risk in the sense that um, there can be gates that get imposed. So if more investors are looking to redeem on a particular quarterly window than that five percent, then you know essentially you know each person gets prorated, and then you know gates can stay up for quite some time. So I think with interval funds, you know, it's not again, it's, there's no perfect structure out there. I think there's a, a benefit in it to it because it does allow for things that are not quite liquid. Um, but but for for clients that don't want to get into LP type structures and have that true illiquidity of like, you know, a 10 year lockup period or what have you like the, I think there's a nice middle ground uh, that you can get here where you're still getting some of those investor protections that come from the 40 act and you've got daily NAV and 1099 tax reporting. And so there are a lot, a lot of the comforts and familiarities that, that advisors and clients like about mutual funds and ETFs. You get a lot of those same benefits in a interval fund structure. There's just that key difference around liquidity. Um, and that can be a, a, both a, a positive and a negative. The, you know, the positive is at most normal times, like, you know, if you need to get $100 out, you, you can get $100 out of that quarterly window. But then there's the off chance that, um, you know, the, the insurance link security space is a, a good example where there's a, been a few rough years and, and losses in that asset class. And, you know, people that thought they were long-term investors in the space became very non-long-term once they had a couple down years and wanted out and then, you know, gates were imposed and, uh, you know, the, the, it's an ongoing process. And so I, I think you have to really, even though there are those quarterly windows, you have to really communicate the structure as more way, more long-term than just, Hey, you know, you can get out quarterly. It's, it's no, you have to, you have to assume that this, something like this will happen at some point, even if it doesn't, because you got to be prepared for what happens if you're going to have to have at least some portion of your money in this fund for a several year, you know, period. You, you, know, you can still get periodic liquidity, but like that, you know, it, there's a chance it can get prorated over an extended period of time. So that is that is a risk. But at the same time, it, it, it's opened up the doors a little bit for, you know, the areas that are probably seen the most success with the structure have been private credit and private real estate and, and real assets. Um, and insurance link would be kind of the third. So those are the three areas I think that have seen the most adoption and use for that particular structure. Um, you're, you're also starting to see a number of registered private market funds, uh, like private equity, come to market. Okay. They those have tended to be more in the tender offer uh, fund structure, which is very very close to an interval fund. I think the the, the difference there, the, or at least my understanding, is the um, it's really kind of board discretion those quarterly repurchase windows so there's less of a, a obligation of an exact amount they have to commit to repurchasing so it's kind of you know again what most quarters it'll probably be you know pretty seamless but they, they've got a little more flexibility to to cap that if they need to so um and are they allowed to charge performance fees underlying is that one of the advantages for the managers as well the private equity managers or are they still on the flat fee i believe if you if there's a performance fee levied, it, it has to be limited to accredited investors uh, only. So right. mo most general funds do not have performance fees, and thus they, you know, essentially they, you know, they can be accessed by any any investor regardless of their accreditation status. Right. Okay. And any, do you see any traditional hedge funds that you know may have like a monthly liquidity um, 
came and mastered putting their funds in a, in a structure like this? Or is it mainly those four categories that you described? I, I, there, I'm sure there's a couple. I haven't. Per, I don't think I've personally encountered a lot of like hedge fund type strategies in the interval structure. It, it could be. I mean, it could be a good vehicle for it. I just I, it just hasn't seemed to be a, a area that's seen a lot of, of growth and adoption with the, uh, yeah. with the structure. But it, it could work. Yeah. So on the, on the fee before, side, just what? Sorry, just one last no, thing no, on the it, fee man, side, it, yeah. Phil. So you talk about alternatives and all this. Like, how do you feel about? compensation structure with with the in the alternative space do you find yourself gravitating towards kind of liquid alts and things that are you know flat fee or are there reasons to really allocate and worth allocating to two and 20 zero and 30 structures that are out there uh i prefer three and 40 structures on a three and 40 is your favorite just going up yeah because then you know you're getting the top tier i'm like yeah, that's right. That's, the, that's, charged, how you, that's man, how you figure it out. You go if they're charging that much. Say, um, say you're an early investor in Medallion without saying you're an early investor in investor I want to. I don't want to brag, but I was a day one uh, <laughs> Medallion investor. So, uh, no, I, I mean mo- most of what we do is is that that kind of flat fee um, uh, approach, and I, and I think that largely, you know, again, given the, the, the most of what we're allocating to tends to be sort of systematic, quantitative approaches. I think that you know again. I think it just lends itself more to the um, the flat management fee structure. But yeah, it, there, there, you know, there can be a time and a place where performance fees make sense. I'm not uh, you know completely anti that as a compensation structure, but um, it's just not a lot of what we do. Got it. So we're at an hour twenty. I just want to make sure: are there any um, elements of the book that we didn't touch on that you think really stand out? Um, relative to other books in the category that, that you want to, you know, that we should chat about? I think, you know, it's funny. Like, I, there aren't as many books, like, about broad alternative investments as you would expect, especially to the audience that I'm writing to. So that's where I, like, I you know, I, I've got a handful on my bookshelf, but, like, most of the things I've encountered over the years focus on on the all space have tended to be, you know, really, like, technical, dense, like, 600 pages, and, and probably not something that that your average advisor is going to pick up. And so I wanted to make this, you know, really approachable. And and it's not exclusively for advisors, but I, I you know, that's that's the the core audience. But ultimately, anyone who's involved in the allocation process, whether it be at the institutional or the the you know individual investor level, I think can get value from it. So it could be you know people involved, like people in my seat, people in different analysts or. or you know, portfolio management roles at wealth management companies, but also advisors too. And, and, and so, um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, like any, you know, you've written a book, it's hard to pick a favorite chapter. They're all kind of your baby, but. I hate them all now, actually. As you say, the, 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 the magic here is not getting bogged down in, you know, the mathematics, but keeping the commercial realities of, an advisor or allocator who's actually got to make decisions in the categories and consider the real life challenges, not just the sort of, here's the mathematical sharp ratio. Of course you should do it. It's, this is not robotic. There's a lot more nuance to it. So, so there's definitely that. And I think I I try to do it in a a way that you, you you know, you you can read it front to back and that's how it progresses in terms of the, the format of the book. But at the same time, you don't have to read 
this chapter into this chapter. You can float around if you want, or even you know after reading. I, I, I like you know my dream was like this was the you know advisor reference resource book. reference book for alternatives that they kept on their bookshelf in their office when they needed to bone up on a particular area or they just needed to refresh themselves on a certain topic that they could pull it out. Like the one thing I'll mention is like each chapter has a a, a section at the end of the chapter called the uh, the allocator's cheat sheet, and that was really just meant to be. It's like you know, five to seven bullet points summarizing the key takeaways from that chapter. So if you, if you really want to get a skim read the book, then you can just go right to those. But I think if you were just using it as a reference guide and wanted to quickly kind of, you know, look at something, that's why, you know, it's a, it's nice at the end of the chapter just to kind of reaffirm what you've just read. But I think also just if someone wants to quickly, you know, peek at something, they can do that too. So, um, yeah, I, I, that's, you know, I, I just felt like this was, I, I hadn't seen a book done like this uh, with, with this audience and that was this, Sort of comprehensive across the alternative spectrum, and so I viewed that as my opportunity, and, and I'm excited to to be at the uh, the finishing line here. Great job, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a it's a worthwhile read for sure. Thank you very 100%. much. 100. So, what's next? Where's the roadshow taking you next? Uh, I got a little. Br- I'm taking next week off for Thanksgiving week and just uh, right. spending time with the family. We're gonna go see my in-laws and and uh so it'll, it'll be back so then the following week is the actual release date uh the tuesday after thanksgiving so 11 30 is the uh day the book comes out and so uh, a few more podcasts that week and the next week but um so i've just been yeah been busy talking to, I, I remember when we published our book I, can, yeah. I remember when we published our book and i went to thanksgiving dinner um to my family with a bunch of books for me to sign and let me tell you what you shouldn't do to a bunch of lay people that don't care about what you do or your book. <laughs> Sit down at the table and be like, who's who's first? Let me sign that book for you. Right? Yeah, it's, All of them were looking it, at me it, like, what is wrong with you? Yeah, I don't know if I'll just be like blindly giving out copies to like all, all family, but like <laughs> I, I will say like it, it was cool about a week ago, like my grandparents are in their 90s um, and I, we went and visited them just to kind of bring them dinner and, and visit. We just hadn't seen them in a while and um, I was like, I was excited to bring them a copy. They knew it was like, you know, done. And like, I showed my grandma the acknowledgement section where I, you know, gave, gave her and my grandpa a mention. Like, like she like cheered up. It was a very cool awesome. moment. She was super proud. So that, you know, that, that made it all worth it for me. <laughs> that boy, Phil, you know, I never thought he'd amount to much. And yeah, yeah. Surprise look, us. <laughs> look at what he's, look at what he's done. Good for um, them, that type of appreciation. None of my brother, I, I spoke to them today. We had a, a lunch with my father every once a week. And I asked him, by the way, has any of you, have any of you read my book? Our book, the, the book that we published? Well, None of them. The, the other book None I of them read it. The other, the other book I signed was for my brother. So my brother is like a, a body, almost a, about a year older than me. And, you know, like, like any brothers, we bust each other's balls a lot. So yeah. he's, not a, he's not a reader like at all. Um, so I wrote, I wrote like the inscription. I go, I'm happy that the first book you'll ever read is the one that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes on you. That's good trolling. That's good trolling right there. Yeah. He'll he'll never read either the the signature in there or the book. So yeah, <laughs> that's right. I don't know who that joke's on. <laughs> that's right. So I, I waited all I waited this whole session to ask you what the what the best pizza is in Chicago. So let's hear it. What, what, oh, come where, on. Where, that's, that's, but I'm, I'm in Chicago. Where, where do you? Well, I'm trying to put him on the spot. Where do we go? We're in Chicago. So, I am a suburbanite now, so my my days of like knowing the the best place for anything it, it is gone. Like I, we don't get to the city as often for for dining. But in terms, so there's probably some new places I'm not aware of pizza. But in terms of like the classic ones that I always liked, like Pequods, I would Pequods. say. And Pequods. I always liked the, there's a place called Peace Pizza. Uh, it was always good. 
um, PIE CE uh, Bucktown. I was like a piece of, of pizza. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but they had like a piece. Sim- they had like a piece symbol as their logo. So yeah. um, that was a good spot. I Putting hear pizza comments, prices are going you know, up. You know, if are you know a Chicago pizza place that we should go to, put it in the comments for us. Pequod's is number one. Well, it's one. funny. It's weird because like I Pequod's put it in there. This well, I like, know that Portnoy's not listening anymore, else he would have been right in there. So. Well, this well, he's is not probably, listening. Portnoy, get in there. This is blasphemy as a Chicago one, but I, I'm not a huge deep dish person. Um, I, I agree. I, I, like, I, 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 just because you live in Chicago doesn't mean you need to defend that terrible pizza. I like, honestly. <laughs> what do you mean I, terrible pizza? What, what do you, you heard. I like it on rare occasions, but it's not something that I crave on a frequent basis. I will say when I was in New York last night and and I uh, went out to to grab a bite with Michael Badnick and he took me to a place called John's on Bleecker um, for pizza and then he you know he claimed it was the best pizza in New York and I I'm not a New York pizza expert but it was phenomenal I I loved it so um, love that yeah John's Pizza okay John's, John's on Bleecker John's on Bleecker in New York yeah John's on Bleecker I, I do love John's pizza. on Bleecker so, so you, you you asked for the best Thin pizza crust, in Chicago and I gave you a New York crust. recommendation yeah. <laughs> sad boy Thin crust, thick crust, <laughs> the bait and switch oven, man. Not yep. wood oven. Like, who cares? Pizza's just the best yeah. food group. Pizza ever. is the best, generally. But it is oh, sad that New York sliced pizzas that have been at a dollar for, for generations are now having to up their prices because of the inflation that we're seeing these days. It's a sad day. That, that's why they say pizza's like sex. Even, even bad one is good. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly. right. Exactly. And most of the time when you eat it, you're alone. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> that is the place to On end that it. note, exactly. <laughs> All right, Phil, what what an awesome book you've written. Good luck and happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Oh, yeah. yeah. Likewise well, to you guys. Last yeah. thing, so so just I, I didn't do this claim at the beginning. So everything we've talked about is not investment advice at all. It's just four guys having drinks on a Friday. So don't take your investment advice from us. And I did it, by the way, and I did a better job you. than you just did, by the way. Oh, you yeah, did. so you oh, weren't even paying attention, crazy. but that's fine. It's good that I we do it twice. Your job is to yeah, ask exactly. people to smash the like button and all that I stuff. I did that. I can't I'm can't having, having my problems again. right now with the mic on the call. <laughs> smash it. Smash it. <laughs> Phil, like and share. Share the love. And stick around for the full five-minute commercial that's coming up, guys. Hold on, hold on. Wait, where can we find Phil? Oh, so you can find – and first of all, thank you guys for having me. This is a lot of fun. You guys are a blast to talk to, so – Appreciate you inviting me on, but uh, you can find me on on Twitter a lot. Uh, at Bips and Pieces is my handle. Uh, same same is my blog, bipsandpieces.com. That's BPS. Uh, you can also find me at our, our company website, savantwealth.com. Uh, and then the book is is available at Amazon and, and everywhere else. Books are sold for pre-orders, and it comes out uh, next or not next uh, Tuesday, eleven thirty. Um, and uh, it's called the Allocator's Edge. So. Hope you, enjoy you also it. write a you also write a regular report too. What's the what's the name of that and where can we find that? Yeah. Oh, the paper trail. Yeah, paper trail. Yeah. yeah. So that, that, that's is, I love that actually. Yeah, that, it's on the blog. So I'm bits and pieces. But every month I, I do a, a a compilation of just kind of the best research and white papers I've I've come across that past month uh, across the investment landscape. And so that, that's a fun. That's my my version of a curated uh, link fest. Uh, everyone, every blogger's got to have their own link fest, and so that one's mine. And nice. they're sort of off the beaten path papers too, which I like. It's stuff that you don't maybe don't stumble on all the time. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's recommended. Cool. Thank you very much. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Thanks, guys. Right, and now guys. I guess you can Have roll the credits. Weekend. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. 
We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestorsAll. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.